0: Our Father, this morning we we come, as often is the case as we come to worship, with conflicting thoughts and conflicting attitudes in our hearts. We come with joy in you. Where else will we find joy? But we also come with sorrow. We come with grief we come with brokenness. We live in a broken world. And perhaps if we didn't believe that, these last six months have particularly demonstrated that on so many levels. Where will we go for hope? Where will we go for safety? Where will we go for confidence? Where will we go for joy? Oh Father, we, we know that's only in you. And so would you would you guide us this morning through a reconsideration of what the apostle has written in these opening chapters of Romans to refresh our minds? to refresh our hearts, to refresh our hopefulness, our confidence in You. Oh, Father, we need, we need to hear from You today. So would You speak in transforming ways in our lives? Would You speak in transforming ways to our minds to our hearts, to our motivations, to our yearnings, our longings, our desires in such a way that as we leave this morning, while the brokenness of the world will not have changed, our attitude towards it and our confidence in You will have changed. Would You guide our time this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. the world is broken. That's what Jean said to me on Wednesday night as we sat on the front porch of our house, recounting the day, recounting conversations we'd had, recounting things that we had read, recounting observations that we had made about circumstances that were surrounding us. I'm not talking about COVID, though COVID is an illustration of the world's brokenness. I'm talking about Personal situations that give us heartache. Grief and sorrow that keeps us personally longing for heaven. The world is broken. Marriages are broken. In every marital union, there are challenges from day one until year 60 or 70, however long the Lord would give us. Some skeptic noted many years ago that in every marriage more than a week old, there are grounds for divorce. I I don't think that's actually true, but it feels like that sometimes, doesn't it? There are struggles and conflicts in marriages over competing desires and finances and jobs and parenting and headship and sex and expectations. Expectations that are both spoken and unspoken. Marriages are broken. Relationships are broken. Relationships between children and parents and parents and children, co-workers, extended family members, neighbors, churches, ministries. Relationships are broken. Ethnic relationships are broken. There is one common race, and it is called mankind. And we are all one. We are the same there's no hierarchy of race, because there is only one race. There's no hierarchy of gender. There's no hierarchy of position. But there is something in this world that is horribly bro- broken around those themes. And there are still ethnic biases and favoritism and prejudice that is unbecoming. And friends, it is in the church. Not, not in this church, but it is in the church and it is, it is to denigrate the name of God that it is so. Political processes are broken. The government is given as a gift of common grace to mankind. And even in the best of governments, there are abuses and injustice and all kinds of folly sex and sexual identity is broken. The incidence of, a, of sexual abuse in this world is catastrophically alarming. It is rare that when a woman comes to us for counseling that she has not been sexually abused in some way. It's not always the reason she comes. Often it's a secondary or tertiary reason but it is almost always there. The brokenness that comes from that is unimaginable to those who have, us who have not gone through it. And let me just say, if you are in that category of person and you have been abused sexually and you've never talked about it to anybody and it is a struggle to you, would you call us and let us help you let us minister the word of God to you in such a way that God might give you freedom from that thing which has bound you for so long. It's not just sexual abuse that's broken, though, is it? There are so many questions about sexual identity and gender. And there are so many perversions of sexuality in this world. It's astounding. Sexuality is broken. Finances are broken, economies are broken, but frankly so are personal finances and skewed attitudes that individuals have towards money. Jobs are lost and paychecks and retirement accounts are decreasing. And what else? Health and car repairs and house repairs and and pets dying. I, ha- I have in my mind... Regine, Regine puts out a hummingbird feeder right in front of our kitchen window every year. And she put it out in April. And And one evening as I was doing the dishes, I saw a hummingbird come. The first hummingbird of the year. And my heart sang. And so we went outside and we were sitting on the porch and we were eating a little bowl of, of uh, sherbet. and uh, And we were eating that. My wife would say it's Sherbert, but we all know it's Sherbet. But anyway, that's a side point. We were eating this ice cream, and I was talking about the hummingbird. And then here came the hummingbird again, and it caught our cat's attention. And I said, oh, Jack, that's the cat's name, Jack the Cat. Jack, you are so old and fat and slow, you can't possibly catch that hummingbird. Ha ha, I went inside to get a glass of tea. I came out, and he had caught it and killed it. And it's just like, it's a hummingbird. The world is broken. People die and pets die and things die. The world is broken, isn't it? The world seems irretrievably and irrevocably broken. Is there any hope? Oh, yes, there is. There is hope for the world. And there is hope for Granberry. And there is hope for You. And there is hope for me. And that hope for us is all the same. It is centered around the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is nothing else that will give us hope. There will, there is nothing else that will fix this world but the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is the message of the apostle Paul to the Romans. Someone asked me this week with great hopefulness, are we going to, are we going to get to Romans chapter 12 this week? And I said, yes, Romans chapter 12, therefore, stop there. Because Paul in Romans chapter 12 is, be, is building on everything that has preceded it. And I want to take one week and just remind us of what the apostle has said as we think about how he is going to apply what he has said about the theology of the gospel. For 11 chapters, he has unfolded the riches of the gospel. He's writing to Rome because he wants them to be the sending church as he goes on a gospel venture to the country of Spain. He wants them to support him financially and he wants them to be his base of support where he can come and go as he goes to Spain. And he is writing to them because he's never been to them and he is unfolding to them that, that his gospel, his understanding of the gospel is an, is an orthodox understanding. It is what the scriptures have always taught through the Old Testament. In fact, that's why he quotes from the Old Testament more than any other New Testament writer because he's saying his gospel is consistent with what has always been exposed about the gospel. And what he will say in chapters 12 to 15, in applying the gospel flows out of everything he has said in these opening chapters of Romans chapter 1 to 11. What has he said in Romans chapter 1 to 11? He has said that the gospel is transformative. Specifically, the gospel of God is a sanctifying gospel For sinners, the gospel of God sanctifies us and will change us. How will the gospel change us? Let's consider this morning four realities about the gospel of God, four realities of the gospel of God. I've already noted in Romans 1 1 to 17, the apostle has introduced the letter and the gospel. Notice verse 1 in chapter 1. He identifies the gospel as belonging to God. Speaking of himself, he says he is called as an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. That is, that is, it is God's gospel. It is not His gospel. It is a gospel that is received by faith alone. Verse 17, in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. That is, it is always revealed by faith. As it is written, the righteous man will live by faith. The gospel is received by faith alone. It is also a sanctifying gospel. Verse 8, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. In other words, the entire world is looking at the Roman church and seeing evidence of the faith of God that is in them. The faith of God is sanctifying them and changing them. And it is for sinners of all kinds, verse 15, So for my part I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The gospel is for all people, for all people who are sinners, Jewish sinners, Gentile sinners, it matters not. The gospel is adequate for them all. Four realities about God's gospel. Let's identify them this way. The gospel of God is a sanctifying gospel for sinners. The gospel is for sinners only. And Paul, in this opening section, starting in 118 all the way through 320, explains at length the sinfulness of sinners this is his starting point as he thinks about the gospel. He must start with sin and sin nature and the identity of all men as sinners. And he will note, first of all, that the gospel is for Gentile sinners. That's essentially chapter 1, 118 to 132. People in the world need the gospel because they are sinners. And what's interesting is that Paul thinks about that theme of of Gentiles being sinners, he, he starts by thinking about the revelation of God to those sinners. So notice 119, because that which is known about God is evident within them. That is, they have the knowledge of God within them. They, they have an innate understanding about the nature of God. He's going to amplify that in 2.14 and 15, speaking about the conscience so that all men have a conscience by which they know the law written on their hearts. Not, not the Mosaic law, but they have an internal law by which they affirm the nature of God, the character of God. They not only have this internal testimony to who God is, though, that they also have an external testimony to who God is. Uh, verse 20 of chapter 1, Since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes... The attributes of God which can't be seen otherwise. His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. So so we can see in creation the nature of God that is otherwise invisible to us. So that, end of verse 20, no one has an excuse. No one can say, I didn't know God. I knew nothing about Him. I'm not culpable for my sin. And Paul says, yes, you are culpable. You see, man's problem is not a lack of revelation. The problem for the Gentiles is that they have suppressed the truth. That's verse 18. In all ungodliness and unrighteousness, these men suppress the truth in unrighteousness in their yearning for unrighteousness, in their practice of unrighteousness, they they attempt to push down, suppress, hold down, almost like trying to hold a beach ball under the water. They, they try and hold down the truth. You can't hold down the truth. They have suppressed the truth. Their rebellion against God is willful. They would rather worship anything else than Him. Verse 23... They exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. They not only worship other men, they worship any image of a man. And if an image of a man won't do, then let's, let's find the image of a creature, an animal, and let's worship that. They want anything just so they don't have to have God. And, and the worst part of all, is that this sin has led to God's judgment against them, and that judgment has already begun. Verse 24, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. Verse 26, For this reason God gave them over to degrading passions. Verse 28, Just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind. In other words, when God saw their rebellion against Him, their persistent rebellion, their persistent unwillingness to believe in Him, He pulled His hands back and said, if that's what you want, you can have it. And that's their judgment. And that's the world we live in. That, that's the reason for its brokenness in part. Because God has turned people over to their sin and said, if you want sin, sin you will have. And the gospel is for Gentile sinners just like that. But the gospel is also for Jewish sinners. At the end of chapter 1, the Jewish reader might be saying, That's right, Paul. You tell them, Paul. Go get them, Paul. You're absolutely right, Paul. Chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment. For in that in which you judge one another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. Here he begins an extended section speaking to the Jewish reader and reminding them that they too fall under the condemnation of God if they persist in doing the same kinds of things that the Gentiles do. What is particularly heinous about their sin and their involvement in sin is that they have an advantage. Chapter 3, verse 2, their advantage is great in every respect. First of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. God has spoken to them. God has revealed His law to them. They know the truth. It's not just written inwardly in their heart. It's not just testified to in in creation. They have the written down word of God. And they have rejected it. And Israel will be judged by God in the same way that that the Gentiles are when the Israelites rebel against Him. Verse 3 of chapter 2, Do you suppose this, O man, that when you pass judgment on those who practice such things things, and do the same things that you will escape the judgment of God? Verse 5, Because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. It's not just that It's not just that you will face wrath, but you are adding to it every day. You're you're supplementing the wrath that is going to come to you. You're adding to it. You're storing up, almost as a treasure, this wrath that God is going to pour out on you. And this will lead the apostle to say in chapter 3 that the gospel is for all sinners because all sinners are under God's wrath. Chapter 3, verse 9. What then? Are we, Jews, better than they, Gentiles? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. All all Jewish people, all Gentile people, which by my reckoning accounts for everybody in the world, is under sin, dominated by sin, controlled by sin, mastered by sin. Sin is Lord apart from Christ. Sin is universal. God's wrath is merited by all. Notice all the all-inclusive words in verses 10 through 12. There is none righteous, not even one. None who understands, none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good, not even one. It almost makes you think that Paul thinks that everyone is under sin. And he does. That's the truth. We are all rebels against Him. In fact, He'll flesh it out, verses 13 to 18, from the tops of their head to the bottoms of their feet. In other words, in, in every aspect of their lives, from head to toe, they are consumed by sin, controlled by sin, dominated by sin. All men are completely depraved. That doesn't mean that they are as sinful as they could be, but it does mean that in every aspect of their lives, there is nothing that is unstained and untouched by sin. No one can save himself. No attempt to to fulfill the law will be successful. Chapter 3, verse 20, "...because by the works of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin." The law exposes sin. The law does not make one able to be saved. And everyone is accountable to God. That's verse 19. Everyone is accountable to God. Let me just consider two implications of this. One, oh, brothers and sisters, let us grieve and lament over the horror of sin. When you look at your newsfeed, when you listen to the laments of the suffering of your disciples, of your neighbors, when you watch the ungodliness of the political drama, when you consider the rage against many injustices of the day and the folly of many activities today, do not be anxious. Do not be angry let your heart cry out over the pain and the grief and the bondage of these who are ensnared by sin. They are doing the only thing they can do. They can do nothing else How can we expect the world to be righteous without Christ? They can't. There will never be justice in this world apart from Christ. And the problem is not that there's injustice in the political realm. There's not folly in the sports world or there's not all kinds of... Foolish manifestations of all kinds of things. That's not the problem. The problem is the lack of Christ. Oh don't be angry. I've had to remind myself of this this week. Yesterday, Regina and I were in conversation and in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, Terry, don't be angry, be grieved. Look at this world and see the folly of what's going on and the devastation of what's going on and be grieved and not angry. That's why John Piper has well said, let the pain and misery of your body and that of the people around you remind you of the exceeding moral horror and spiritual ugliness of sin. Oh, more than more than personal anger at at the implications of folly that has happened to us. Let us be grieved over those who are in bondage. Another implication, the gospel is for and available to all people. The gospel is for and it is available to all people. But there's a limitation to that sentence. The gospel is only for those who acknowledge they are sinners. This is a bad news, good news situation. The bad news is that you are a sinner and God is waiting to pour out His infinite wrath on you. The good news is that you are a sinner and God is pleased to offer the gospel to you. Listen to what one one writer has said. To deny sin is bad news indeed. The only good news is sin itself. Sin is the best news there is. The best news there could be in our predicament. Because with sin, there's a way out. There's a possibility of repentance. Repentance. You can't repent of confusion or psychological flaws inflicted by your parents. You're stuck with them. But you can repent of sin. Sin and repentance are the only grounds for hope and joy. The grounds for reconciled, joyful relationships. You can be born again. If you are here this morning... And you have never trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior from sin. I urge you, don't attempt to run away from your sin on your own, but turn your back on your sin and turn to Jesus Christ and repent of your sin and trust that Christ alone has paid the penalty of your sin so that He might liberate you from all of that penalty and free you from the bondage in which you find yourself so that you might live for Him to please Him. Oh, brother and sister, if that's you this morning, if you've never trusted Christ, Christ died to set you free. But that's only going to happen when you start by acknowledging that you are a sinner. The Gospel of God is a sanctifying Gospel for sinners. Second reality, the gospel of God is a sanctifying gospel for sinners. It is gospel, it is good news. Specifically, the gospel is God's declaration that you are righteous when you are not yet righteous. Justification is not God making us righteous. That's what Roman Catholicism teaches, that God makes people righteous, and then because they are righteous, they do good things that merit that righteousness. But justification, rather, is God's declaring us to be righteous when we are not yet righteous. He imputes to us, that is, He Considers us, or he accounts to us, the righteousness of God as if, the righteousness of Christ, as if we had done everything righteous that Christ did, though we have not yet done those things. And he treated us as if we had done what Christ did when he utterly, completely, totally fulfilled the law. So let's define it this way. Justification is God's imputation of a righteousness that meets His standard to sinners who cannot meet His standard. Justification is God's imputation or God's declaration of a righteousness which meets His standard to sinners who on their own cannot meet that standard. It's the way He satisfies His wrath against sin by judging Christ for our sins and imputing Christ's righteousness to us. This is, this is bound up in the Word, the righteousness of God. We see that in chapter 3, verse 21. Now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested being witnessed by the law and the prophets. That little phrase, the righteousness of God, actually appears in the introduction to this letter, 117. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. It is is the righteousness that God demands, and it is also the righteousness that God supplies. It is those words that were first a struggle and then a tremendous delight to Martin Luther... Listen to what Luther says. I've read this before, but it bears repeating. He says, I greatly long to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans. And nothing stood in my way but that one expression, the righteousness of God. Because I took it to mean that justice whereby God is just and deals justly in punishing the unjust. And my situation was that although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner troubled in my conscience and I had no confidence that my merit could assuage Him. Therefore, I did not love a just and angry God, but rather hated and murmured against Him. Yet I clung to dear Paul and had a great yearning to know what he meant. Night and day, I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the just shall live by His faith. Then I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy God justifies us through faith. Therefore, I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of Scripture took on a new meaning. And whereas before the justice of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. This passage of Paul became became to me a gate of heaven. What Luther is telling us is what Paul has told us in Romans, in Romans 3, that the righteousness of God is not God overlooking your sin. God cannot be just and say, well, Terry tried, and so I'm going to give him a pass. No, justice must be served. The penalty of sin must be borne by someone. The justice of God, the righteousness of God is such that He doesn't overlook our sin, but our sin gets attributed to another and that other pays the debt. So that we find this in um, chapter 3, verse 26, speaking about Christ and His work. He says, "...for the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time, that He would be just, that is, He would be righteous." And He would be the justifier. That is the one who declares righteous. The one who has faith in Jesus. He can be just righteous by declaring us righteous because all of His wrath against my sin was poured out on Christ. Christ paid the debt. I can't. And eternity in hell is not long enough for me to pay the debt of my sin. But Christ, in one moment on the cross, can fully satisfy that. And when God poured out His wrath against Christ for me, for you, He then is able to be just when He declares us to be righteous. The Gospel is God's declaration that you're righteous when you are not. And the only way to receive this gospel is through faith. The gospel excludes works. If, if one gets something by work, he's only receiving something that he deserves. And because men are sinners, no matter how highly they think of themselves... What they deserve, what they merit, what they earn is only one thing. 3.23, the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. Like four of you believe that. It's death, friends. If we're going to work for our salvation... The only thing we will ever get is death and nothing else. The only way to get it is not by works. The only way to receive this gospel is by faith. A simple acknowledgement that we cannot save ourselves and if we will be saved, it is only God that will do it. Faith is not a work. Some will say, well, well, faith itself is a work. No, no, no. Faith is saying, I can't. God, you must. That's no work. That's an acknowledgement I can't work. It's an acknowledgement that if I will ever be saved, it is only the ability of God to do it, and I will never accomplish it on my own. Faith is resting in God to do everything for you. Everything. That's the way Abraham was saved. That's the theme of chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 3. What does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Verse 9. Is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? In other words, is this, is this salvation only for Jews or for Gentiles also? Oh, listen, he says, We say that faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it credited? Was it credited when he was circumcised or uncircumcised? It happened before his circumcision. Not well circumcised, Paul says, but well uncircumcised. In other words, this salvation that comes to us by faith is for Jew and for Gentile. It's only by faith. That's the way Abraham was say, verse 16, For this reason it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace. In other words, faith and grace work hand in hand together. And if it is not by faith, then it cannot be by grace And if it is by faith, then it is a gracious salvation as as well. Faith and grace are the left wing and the right wing of the airplane of salvation. Faith and grace are the husband and wife of the marriage of salvation. They are inextricably linked together. They are partners in this gospel. The only way to get this gospel is by grace through faith alone. That's the way Abraham was saved. That's the way every Jew is saved. That is the way every Gentile is saved. That is the way David was saved. Verse 6 of chapter 4. David speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven, whose sins have been covered. That's grace. That's faith. And that is, friends, why Christ died. The end of this chapter. Now not for his sake only was it as written was it written that it was credited to him speaking about Abraham but for our sake also to whom it will be credited as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead he who was delivered over because of or for our transgressions and was raised because of or for our justification Abraham was saved by grace through faith. David was saved by grace through faith. Every Jew is saved by grace through faith. Abraham, or excuse me, every Gentile is saved by grace through faith. And that is the very reason Christ died, so that we could be saved by grace through faith. The gospel is a gift of grace alone that comes by faith alone in Christ alone. That's the gospel of God that is a sanctifying gospel. Third reality, the gospel of God is a sanctifying gospel for sinners. That's chapters 5 through 8. The word sanctify simply means to make holy or to make clean. It is used to indicate things that are set apart for a particular purpose So a believer in Jesus Christ is set apart, made distinct, made unique, in order to be holy, in order to live for Jesus Christ, to imitate him. And sanctification is simply the working out of our salvation, the process of progressively being made more and more like the character and person of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Sanctification does not save us. But sanctification does give evidence of our salvation. And we, and we find this all through chapters 5 through 7. Sanctification is the working out of our movement from being in Adam to being in Christ. Chapter 5 verse 17. If by the transgression of the one death reigned through the one, that is Adam much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. In other words, we were in bondage to Adam, but now having been justified, we can experience this reigning of Christ in our lives. That's the process of sanctification. Sanctification is the working out of, our real, of the reality of our move from the enslavement to sin to being enslaved to righteousness. Chapter 6, verse 10. The death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So, consider yourselves, verse 11, to be dead to sin, but alive to God and Jesus Christ. You have a new identity. You're no longer in bondage to sin. And because of that, consider yourselves to be alive to Christ and live in an according fashion. Sanctification is the working out of the reality of our move from law to grace. Grace. From law to grace. Chapter 7, verse 5. While we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. In other words, under the law before Christ, the only thing we could do was sin. But now... We have been released from the law, having died to that which we are bound, so that we serve, present tense, in an ongoing way, in newness of the Spirit and not in oldness of the letter. So so sanctification is that process by which we live in the Spirit and not under the law. Sanctification is also the working out of the reality of our move from living by the flesh to living by the Spirit. Chapter 8, verse 12. So then, brothers, we are not under obligation. Excuse me, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Just just stop there for a minute. Isn't that an amazing sentence? You're under obligation but not to the flesh. Before Christ, that's all we could say. Is I can only do what the flesh compels me to do. I can do nothing else. And Paul says, now that's changed. You're not under obligation to the flesh. Verse 13, for if you're living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you're putting to death, ongoing, present tense, that's the process of progressive sanctification. If by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will die. Live. We've been set free from living by the flesh to living by the Spirit. And the, the sanctification process, if you're going to boil it all down, is the process of making us to look like the image of our Savior Jesus Christ. Verse 29, chapter 8. Those whom He foreknew, He predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son. He wants us to look increasingly like His Son. That's sanctification. And sanctification, as John Stott has said, we are men made new. That's what the Gospel does. The Gospel changes us. And friends, that is so hopeful for us because prior to the Gospel, as I've, I've, I've already said two or three times, we, we, we could only sin. We could never please God. And now after the Gospel, there's freedom. I don't have to be angry. I don't have to be bitter. I don't have to be covetous. I don't have to be ensnared by sexual sin. I don't have to be ensnared by greed. I don't have to be ensnared by food, either by starving myself or by gorging myself. There's freedom. There's liberty. And and not just I don't have to do those things. There's also an ability to please God, to honor Him, to live for Him. That only comes by the gospel. One last reality. Chapters 9 to 11. The gospel of God is a sanctifying gospel for sinners. To say that the gospel is God's gospel means that salvation emanates from Him alone. He designs and produces salvation. I do not produce salvation on my own. I do not design salvation. I did not come up with the process of salvation. The only thing I ever came up with is sin. The only thing I ever contribute to my salvation is the sin from which I need redemption. There is nothing that a man ever does in order to bring about salvation on his own. It is God's salvation alone. He is sovereign to choose whom he will save and he does choose whom he will save. He chose Israel to be his corporate people. Chapter 7. Nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants, but through Isaac your descendants will be named. Through Isaac God chooses the nation of Israel to be his. Chapter 11, verse 2, in a similar vein, he says, God has not rejected his people, parentheses, Israel, whom he foreknew. He chose Israel. He has not rejected. He has foreknown, elected, designed, sovereignly planned for salvation, this nation of Israel, and they are his and will be his. Among Those whom he has saved as a nation. He has also chosen individual Israelites to be saved. Chapter 9 verse 12. It was said to her the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written Jacob I loved. Esau I hated. He between Jacob and Esau chose, selected, designed for salvation Jacob, but did not design Esau for salvation. In a similar vein, chapter 11, verse 5, in the same way then there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. In other words, God will at some time in the future save the entire nation as a nation, but until that time he still has a remnant of Israelites that he is saving as demonstration of His faithfulness to the nation as a nation. He's not only saved Israel, He's not only saving individual Israelites, but He has chosen individual Gentiles to be saved as well. 9.24 Even us, whom He also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. That is, He is saving Gentiles to fulfill His promises. Chapter 11, verse 11, I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall. That is, Israel did they. May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. In other words, God has chosen Gentiles to be His in order to provoke Israel to jealousy so that at one point the nation will be saved as a nation. Only those whom He elects will be saved. This is solely about His mercy, about His choosing, about His design. Chapter 9, verse 18, sums it up. So then, He has mercy on whom He desires and He hardens whom He desires. It's all about Him. It's all about His choosing. Only those He elects will be saved. But brothers and sisters, everyone He elects will be saved. No one drops out. Once they have been chosen and elected for salvation, they are secure in that salvation. A friend of mine used to say, when people asked him, when were you saved? He would say, before the foundation of the earth. Before, before there was even an earth, God had chosen him, designed him for salvation. Now that's not the day that it happened in time and space but he was secure from that moment of God's choosing forward. When we say that the gospel is God's gospel, we mean that everything about the gospel is His. It is part of what Paul says at the end of Romans 11. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. And the gospel is part of all things. The gospel is from Him... It is through Him, it is accomplished by His means, and it is to Him that, it is, that is, it is for His purpose to bring Him glory forever. Your salvation, my salvation, is all about Him. God's gospel means that the entire process of salvation is all about Him. And So as we think about the book of Romans, it's been a while perhaps since we've seen this chart, Romans is about the gospel of God. It's God's gospel. It's God's gospel for sinners and sin. It's God's gospel that brings salvation. It's God's gospel that not only saves, but also sanctifies. And on that basis, it is only God's gospel. Excuse me, I forgot sovereignty. I was getting so excited. It is also God's gospel in that only He is the one that accomplishes it. And then on that basis, He calls us to serve. Don't, don't jump into Romans chapter 12 and say, Oh, this is the good stuff. Friends, the only reason God can call us to do the things He does in Romans chapter 12 is because of Romans 1 to 11. He, Paul has set the table for our service of Christ the only way the only reason we can serve him is because yes we are sinners but he has saved us by his grace through faith and is sanctifying us by his sovereign purposes and because of that now we can serve him now we're equipped now we're ready so what are some things that we can say we've learned in this process romans 1 to 11 Every broken part of the world can be traced to sin. Every broken part of the world is because of sin. It all goes back to Genesis 3. Everything broken is either directly related to sin, or like the fallen creation, it is a byproduct of sin. And we need to think of the troubles of the world in that way. We need to start thinking about people who are suffering because they're ensnared and they're trapped or they are suffering because of what sin does. Because of that, the only answer for sin is a Savior. And we need to stop being anxious and angry at the world and our circumstances there is an appropriate anger against sin but let's just be cautious there because I don't know about you but I'll just be honest when I'm angry even when I'm righteously angry it stays righteously angry typically for about a nanosecond and maybe a half and then it becomes unrighteous and my guess is that's probably the way it works in your life too don't don't say my anger is just it's probably not what we need is compassion friends every sinner is someone trapped and they need to hear the gospel remember chapter 10 how will they call on him in whom they have not believed and how will they believe in him whom they have not he- heard and how will they hear without a preacher I'm not talking about people like me I'm talking about people who declare the truth how will they hear without someone saying let me show you the way to hope because of that let us learn the gospel the gospel must be heard by sinners and declared by believers um, Regina and I had a chance a couple of times this week to be out and about. I'm the preacher. She has the gift of evangelism. And I've, I've been honest about that before. It's, it amazes me. And twice we were out and about this week. And she just... She started a conversation I would never have. Because she was reaching out to someone and saying, I wonder if that person knows the gospel. So we're just at... Taco Tuesday, we're minding our own business, eating our tacos. It was date night. Except all of a sudden I realized she's not talking to me. She's talking to the person at the other table. And within 90 seconds, I was hearing the gospel. She's speaking the gospel. Because she's concerned about that person at the table next to us. Friends, we need the gospel. And if you don't know the gospel, let me give it to you in six words. Grace, man, God, Christ, faith. Grace, the only way we're saved is not through our works, but through the grace of God pouring out righteousness on us through Christ that we don't deserve and cannot earn on our own. Man, I'm a sinner and can do nothing to save myself god god is god is the one who designs the plan of salvation gives the plan of salvation and sends jesus christ to die on the cross for our sins and we get that salvation through faith only by believing and trusting in him with the hope that we get heaven friend if you don't if you don't have hope then you don't believe the gospel. The gospel is not just about our get out of jail free card. The gospel orients us towards Christ, that we can be freed from sin, and that we get Jesus, that we get heaven, that we get transformation. That's the hope of the gospel. Grace, man, God, Christ, faith, hope. And we need to learn that well enough. And that's not the only way to say the gospel. But that's a basic way to say the gospel. And we need to learn to find some way to speak the gospel and to minister to a world that is just aching to hear that truth. The gospel is sanctification and change, has sanctification and change as its goal. So the question is, what's changing in my life? God does not save us so that we can stay in our sins. God saves us to change us. And when we are saved, there will be change. We are not saved by sanctification, but we are saved for sanctification. So the question is, am I giving evidence of that sanctification? where am I changing? What is the evidence that God's gospel has taken root in my life? Oh friends, give thanks that God is changing you when you're changing. We might also ask, where am I not changing? Why am I not changing? Am I not changing because of ignorance? Then friend, if I don't know something, I need to learn what God can do for me. Am I not changing because of rebellion? Because I don't want to? That I'm resisting what God would do? Then friend, if that's your situation, then repent. Am I not changing because of laziness? It's hard work. We labor. We work out with fear and trembling, Paul says in Philippians 2, our salvation. It's laborious. It doesn't come easy. And maybe you're one of those that just says, I quit, I give up. It's just the way I am. Friend, you need persistence. You need perseverance. And you need endurance. And God gives us that in Christ and Christ's spirit. Where am I not changing? Or we might ask this. Have I not given any discernible evidence of change? Is there no evidence that I've changed? Friend, if that's you, it is highly probable that you're not a believer in Jesus Christ because when you have the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God will do what the Spirit of God does inevitably and always. And that is, He will produce His fruit. And if there's no fruit, you have every reason to question your salvation. And if that's your situation this morning, again, I urge you, repent. Turn away from your sin. Trust Christ as Savior. It's a broken world, isn't it? It's a broken world. Where's the hope for this broken world? The hope for this broken world is the cross and the gospel of God only. And one day soon, God will save Israel as a nation 11.26, So all Israel will be saved just as as it is written. The Deliverer will come from Zion and He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. He will come and He will rule and reign for all eternity. And every injustice, every bit of brokenness will be fixed. That's the gospel of God. Our Father, we thank you for the treasure of this gospel. Thank you for what it's worked in us. Thank you for how it is saving and has saved us. Thank you for the privilege of being those who carry that gospel to others. Would you make us submissive to this gospel so that we might be changed by it? And would you make us bold with this gospel so that we might see others changed by it? We pray, Father, in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.